Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm looking at the menu today, and I think you're going to enjoy the meal. We've got Dr. Alex McFarlane joining me in just a few seconds. And then Dr. Greg Heddington will continue our study in the book of John. And then we're going to spend a full hour with Matthew Barrett talking about the Trinity. It's going to be a wonderful conversation as well. So that's what's scheduled for today. Galatians 5, and 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So we're going to start today with my friend, uh, Dr. Alex McFarland, who is an author and an apologist. He is also the founder of Truth for a New Generation. I want to talk to him about that as well as we're getting now, I think, past some COVID restrictions. I'm looking forward to finding out what's going on in his world. Alex, welcome. Well, thank you, Bill. It's always a thrill to be on with you. How are things there in Minneapolis and St. Paul? Well, you know, in Minnesota, we've got what's called winter, and it usually lasts till about July, but it's starting to break (laughs) for an early spring, and we've got some sunshine and about 58 degrees today, so it feels really nice. Well, well, God bless you. Yeah, uh, along is coming summertime, the best two weeks of the year. <laughs> exactly. Right, right. So, Alex, you know what I'd love to ask you about today is how do people, in your opinion, best own their faith? You know, and I'm thinking about that with younger kids, because younger kids aren't owning their faith, so they find themselves uh, walking away from it. Yeah, you know, you're right. In fact, I was just on a phone call with with a family about two days ago, and their 18-year-old has, you know, made a profession of faith, grew up in church and all those things, but now it has a lot of beliefs that are just wildly unbiblical. And uh, January of this year, Bill, uh, the Barna Research Group, George Barna, very respected um, Barna Research Group two months ago said that of millennial Christians, and there are many, you know, 20-somethings that profess faith in Christ, but of millennial Christians, 94% said knowing Christ is the best thing that could happen to anyone. Yay, that's good. All mm-hmm. right. But 50% said it is, quote, wrong to tell someone of another religion that they should change their religion and presumably change and turn to Christ. And so how to your question, how do people own their faith? And by the way, I think all the things that go along with faith, which is not only belief in Jesus, but submitting one's life to the Lordship of Christ and following, you know, the 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 parameters for Life, you know, we we are to pursue righteousness. We are to repent from sin. We are to tell the world, make disciples of all nations. I think the the one and only thing uh, we can say is, Bill, to know the Bible and to live by it. I mean, um, Jerome in the third century, there was a Christian leader named Jerome, 
And he said, knowledge of the Scripture is knowledge of Christ. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the only way we can own our faith, know what we believe, and really live it out is to to be daily living under the knowledge of and the submission to the Word of God. Alex, wouldn't you say that another piece of the owning your faith uh, would be to have a a three or four or five minute discussion on your faith story. Somebody in a conversation oh, yeah. said, "So why why would you believe in Jesus, or why would you want to go to heaven?" Yeah. You'd be able to have a three or four or five minute talk on that. Yeah, yeah. We, we used to call it you know sharing your testimony, right? Uh, and. Oh, a book, um, I'm sure you know this name, Bill. In fact, maybe you interviewed him before he passed away. Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade. Did you ever inter- interview Bill Bright? I didn't, but I quoted him this morning. Did you really? <laughs> at, yeah, at a Bible study. I was so blessed when, when I went to uh, Liberty University 30 years ago. A uh, long time. Time flies, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. But. I I had a class on personal evangelism, and it was taught by Bill Bright, and his son Brad later told me that he felt like it it was probably the last time that his dad uh, taught a full-out college course, Uh, but it was personal evangelism, and we had a semester-long class taught by Bill Bright. And we went over how to share your personal testimony or or your, your faith story. And you you really ought to learn how to share it in one or two minutes or maybe three to four minutes. But And we went through Bill Bright's book, which I highly recommend, called Witnessing Without Fear. Bill Bright, and if, if ever there was a man that personified evangelism, it was Bill Bright. Witnessing Without Fear, just a superb book. But your your faith story is, is this. My life before I met Christ— how I met Christ, my life since I've met Christ, and OPS, you can meet Christ. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And keep it personal. You know, yeah, and, and, you know, for one thing, the ability to share your salvation testimony shows that, that you've had an experience with Jesus. You know, um, if, if somebody doesn't have a testimony— um, maybe they need to go back and, and ask themselves, have I really had that encounter where I said yes to salvation through Jesus? And so uh, John chapter 3, when Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again, I mean, that, that speaks to the fact that there needs to be a moment where we consciously make the decision, Lord, I, I repent of my sin and I believe in you and what you did on the cross. And I I realize you did it for me, so Lord Jesus, save me, wash my sins away. And, uh, you know, that that might spark a renaissance of evangelism in our country. I mean, we need need a Holy Spirit outbreak of evangelism. And maybe if churches and groups like your, your wonderful radio network, we remind people to know how to share your faith story, your testimony, Maybe that'll help us recover an ethic of evangelism. Seems like the opportunities are all over the place. Oh yeah, uh, people are afraid. I mean, people are people are 
apprehensive. Mm-hmm. And and I think people are ready. Um, Bill, listen to this, man. And it's so, it's so good to connect. Every two weeks you and I get to visit, and it's like sitting down around the, the fire with one of my best friends. Nice. We get to talk about the goodness of God. But Tuesday this week, okay, there's a knock on my door, and I go, and um, it was a young man in his early 20s, and he asked if, if I needed any carpentry or drywall done. So he's he's a you know drywall guy and a handyman looking for work. Nice young man. So we're on the front porch. We're talking, and they they had come from the upper northeast, headed down south to try to find a better life. And uh, he and his girlfriend have a five month old baby. So we, of all things, we start talking about marriage and relationship and. Um, the book, The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. Mm. Have, you're familiar with that book. And it's funny, about three weeks ago, I interviewed Gary Chapman for a show. And so I said, wow, so you're reading the book, The Five Love Languages? And he goes, yeah, it's phenomenal. I said, yeah, the author's a good friend of mine, Gary Chapman. And I said, listen, do you, do you know the Lord? And he wasn't really sure. And I said, are you and your the mother of your baby? Are y'all thinking about getting married? Well, in it, long story short, I got to lead them both to Christ. Wow. And we went out to their car, and she was in the car. And um, you know, fortunately, he ha- he said he had work for the next month. And um, you know, I'm I'm going to call him and maybe have him come help me build a deck or something, maybe. But the bottom line, they were ready, and and they they were like, man, you know, what's going on? The world's getting so crazy. And I I said, look, here's what the gospel is. Here's what it means. And wouldn't it be great? to know that you're right with God, to know that your sins are forgiven, and to know that, you know, you can raise this little baby, to know Christ. And, you know, it was not some big sermon. It was just they were ready. And the reason I share this is I bet the the wonderful folks that listen to this network, Faith Radio Network and the Bill Arnold Show, there are a dozen people a day that will cross your path. And of a fairly high percentage not only need the Lord, but they're probably ready if somebody would tell them the way. <laughs> yeah. I speak on Friday nights um, at a recovery center, and I will regularly, like every week, say, would you like to pray to receive Christ as your Savior tonight? And I, mm. I remember thinking, uh, keep it really simple. Because yeah. and be prepared when people say, "Yeah, I am," because yeah. right with the minute, <laughs> the minute you get that answer, you get that sense of panic, thrill, and you know, explosive excitement in your brain. Yeah, exactly. You know, God is so good, and the the, the gospel is powerful in spite of the the awkwardness of the messenger sometimes. And so, don't worry, folks. Don't worry that you're going to say it wrong. Or, I mean, there there are some components about what the gospel message is, and maybe after the break or something, I'd love to share that. But I'd love um, that. Bill, the the, um, the first time I, I led some people to Christ, I was at a, a gas station. I was actually driving to Virginia to check out Liberty University. I was going to go to grad school there. And so I'd been a Christian a couple of years, and I, man, I was the most shy, inarticulate, clunky, awkward goofball of a 
25-year-old, and now I'm a clunky, awkward goofball, (laughs) you know, uh, grown-up. But here's the thing. So this couple is in this um, car, and they pulled up and they asked me for directions. And this is going to sound so cheesy, but here's what I said. I promise. I I said, I don't know. I'm not from here, but I I don't know how to get to whatever city it was. I don't know how to get there, but I can tell you how to get to heaven. And anyway, I I said, what are you guys up to? And they said, well, we're we're moving in together. And I I began to share the gospel. I said, really? You know, um, you don't want to do that. You know, the studies show if you live together, you're three times more likely to break up and all this stuff. And, and they, this guy, he goes, are you a preacher? I said, no, but I'm a Christian. And I said, could I, could I explain what it means to be a Christian? And, and they looked at each other, and they were like, yeah. And I'm like, really? Um, um, okay, uh, well. And the girl looked up kind of sheepishly and looked at the guy, and she goes, I, I just i have never felt right about us moving in together. And I didn't know how to tell you, but I don't want to do this. And she said, I just feel convicted about it. And I said, can I explain how to accept Christ? And I know it was the most awkward, not articulate presentation of the gospel ever. And in a rainy, under this gas station awning, this young couple accepted Christ. And I said, can I get you a Bible? So I said, wait here. And I I drove and went to this place. We had some stuff in storage because I was moving to go to seminary. It took me 30 minutes. I come back, and they're still standing there, and I gave them a Bible. And they they actually looked different. They had this joy on them. Mm-hmm. But my point is, don't focus on how uh, inadequate or unqualified you think you are. We're all unqualified. If you're willing to tell people about Jesus, God will use you. He really, really will. So true. Dr. Alex McFarland is my guest. We'll take a short break and be right back with Alex. So nice to be back with my friend, Dr. Alex McFarland. Alex, right before the break, you were talking about something you were going to share after the break. And my Friday afternoon brain can't remember what it is now. Well, you know, th- there are some things that need to be conveyed when, when sharing the gospel, uh, the good news. And, and that's what the word gospel means, the good news that God sent his son to pay for our sins on the cross. Um, and let me share uh a couple of Bible verses that, you know, it's easy to remember. I mean, if you really pray and ask God to help you, uh, Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned. We're, we're all sinners. And Romans 6.23, so almost think of like almost doubling it, but Romans mm-hmm. 3.23 says we've sinned. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. So just like a job, you get a paycheck, you get a wage. Well, you live a life, and the, the paycheck at the end of a life of sin is is death, separation from God. 
And it would be very sad if the story ended there, but it says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, we're, we're all sinners, and there's a paycheck coming, and it's, it's called judgment. But if we're willing to accept this gift, it's eternal life. Now, Romans 5, 8, Romans 5, verse 8 says, God demonstrated his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God has tangibly shown that he loves you. Bill, each and every person listening, God loves them. Um, and God proved it because Jesus came and on the cross and, you know, we'll, we'll soon celebrate this as we celebrate Easter on Passover, Jesus was crucified and the appropriate measure of God's wrath that you and I deserve for all my sin, all the sin of Alex McFarland, I'm a sinner, but it was placed on Jesus. So Either I suffer for my sin, but that the Bible calls that hell, or I could accept that Jesus suffered for me, and that goes for everybody. And so Romans 3.23, you have to talk about sin. Romans 6.23, sin will separate us from God. Romans 5 verse 8, God has shown that he loves you and that he's made a way for you to be forgiven. Jesus died. And then Romans 10 13 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Bill, every now and then people will say, yeah, but you don't know how bad I am. I'm a, I've sinned or whatever. Look, Bill or Alex, knowing what you've done, that doesn't mean a thing. God knows, and God knows everything about us, and he says, I love you anyway. One verse I love to include when I'm talking about the gospel is the, the gospel of John, John six thirty seven. And and maybe there's somebody listening right now, Bill, that needs to hear this. But John six thirty seven, Jesus said, The one who comes to me I will in no way reject. Isn't that awesome? That's amazing. I mean it is. And listen, somebody who's cheated on their spouse, somebody who's been an atheist, somebody who's held God at arm's length for years, or you've abused your body with drugs or I mean, you've, you've got things in your past you would just as soon forget. We all do. But Jesus said, the one who comes to me, in no way will I reject them. And so maybe somebody right now, this is the day, and you feel that little nudge. The, the Lord is speaking to your heart. If you will call on Jesus, I promise you, he will hear and he will receive you because he loves you immeasurably so. And Bill, I mean, that is really, really good news. We talk about the good news. Man, that is great news. The loving Lord will take me back. His arms are open if, I, if I'll turn to him. Man, that's, that's some news we all need to hear, isn't it? It's the greatest news that God will know you, he will love you, and you will never have any fear of rejection. I know. I know. Um, people ask me every now and then, Bill, I'll get this question. Somebody will say, uh, what if I've committed the unpardonable sin? My friends, here's what I want to say. The, the only thing that will put you beyond the reach of God's forgiveness is that if you were to die in a state of unbelief. I mean, you die, you leave this world in a state of unbelief, there's no second chance. 
But here in this, scholars have a word. They call this the church age because Christ arose, Christ ascended to heaven. Peter preached at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came. And for 2,000 years, the gospel has gone forth. And we're, we're in a time period right now called the church age. Where we are right now in world history, there is no way for you to be beyond the realm of God's forgiveness unless you just stubbornly say, I will not turn to Christ. If you will turn to Christ, it doesn't matter. You might have spent the last three decades robbing banks, cursing, sinning. You know, we, we classify sin, but look, sin is sin. If you will turn to Jesus right now today, a, a brand new life will start. Christ will receive you. And from the Bible, that is a promise. And that gets me back to where we started, Alex. You will then be a person who will understand that you have been born again, and you can understand your identity in Christ and start abiding in him and start owning your faith. Amen. Amen. I was thinking about something, and I know we've probably only got a couple of minutes, but um, with COVID, sort of, uh, thankfully, things are opening up again, and, you know, my calendar is really filling up, praise the Lord. But I want to come to Minnesota. And, folks, if you go to my website, alexmcfarland.com, my schedule is on there. Uh, reach out to my um, assistant, Amy Myers. She's a pastor's wife in Pennsylvania who helps me with my correspondence. Uh, I want to come, and I'm going to bring some people with me that are staff that we use. And we're going to do an event I don't know where it's going to be, but I, just, I felt led to mention this, Bill, that um, I want Truth for a New Generation to come to wherever in Minnesota God opens the door. And, and I want to talk about worldview and how we can understand the biblical worldview and we can pass the faith on to others. And so, folks, um, you pray about it. Somebody listening to this, and um, we've, hey, we've rented the 10,000-seat Coliseums. We've done that. Uh, but I don't, I don't care if it's a church of 125 people or a church of 5,000 people. Um, Truth for a New Generation needs to happen in Minnesota. Go to my website and reach out to me, and let's plan an event that will change lives for years to come. I like it. Sounds like a plan, Alex. Thank you right, so much for sharing that, and I appreciate um, you coming on the program, and always nice to talk to you. Uh, did a, have a great weekend, and uh, let's pick it up again in a couple of weeks. Would love to. Thank you so much. Bless you. Yep. Thanks. Bye. Dr. Alex McFarland, always my guest. Go to alexmcfarland.com. We'll take a little break. When we come back, we're going to jump back into the study of the book of John with Bible teacher Dr. Greg Headington. Get your Bible out and get your paper out and your pencil. We'll take notes. We'll study God's Word. That's all next. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno, Primetime Drive. 
I love to study the Word, and I love studying it with friends, and I have uh, Dr. Greg Heddington with me. We're going to continue our study on the book of John. We're all the way up to John chapter 5, where the man is healed at the pool of Bethesda. I'm excited to get back into this study. Greg, welcome. Uh, Bill, great to be back. Let's jump in. All right. Well, welcome to the 10th lesson in our study of the Gospel of John as we look at chapter 5 this week, and the title for this lesson is too good to be true, question mark. And the central idea of the lesson is Jesus has all authority as God's son. If you're taking notes, Roman number one, introduction. As chapter five opens, we find that Jesus has made a geographical switch from living in near obscurity up in the north of Galilee and travels with his apostles, 75 south, to one of the largest cities in the world, Jerusalem. Now, we remember, I mean, who could forget, that Jesus had recently visited this city of 600,000 people to do a little, shall we say, house cleaning in the temple back in chapter 2. This time, he's returned to celebrate one of the Jewish feasts, and as he walks by the pool area called Bethesda, he sees a multitude of invalids waiting by the pool, and his eyes fall on one particular man. Now, let's give this man a backstory because we really don't get any background from Scripture. So we can make this incident more personal because Jesus makes it personal when he picks out this one man among all the many disabled people living by the pool. He's called Mordecai. All those friends call him Morty. Hmm. I mean, who's to say his name was not Morty? So how did he become a, a paraplegic? Well, let's say that as a teenager, he dreams of participating in the Olympics. Now, the ancient Olympic Games began in Greece in 776 B.C., and although the Games were only for those living in Greece, Morty fantasized about going and winning the laurel wreath of victory. What would be his event? He decided on the hurdles, and although he did not have money to buy hurdles of equal height with which to practice on, he practiced by running as fast as he could, jumping over whatever was in the way, whether dogs or sheep or tables in the marketplace. Well, one day as he's jumping over a particularly tall cow, he lands horribly on the other side, cracks his spine, and becomes a paraplegic as one of the many people who's sitting by the healing pool in Bethesda. So that gives a little feel for him now. So he's been sitting by the pool, we find out, for 38 years with diminishing hopes of ever being healed. But... He is not anonymous to God. Now, one explanation for the crowd of people at the pool is described in some of your Bibles. It says that the pool evidently was a natural spring which bubbled periodically, so John explains that a multitude of invalids gathered by the pool every day because it had a reputation for bringing healing when, quote, an angel stirred the waters. Now, some miraculous places like this in the ancient world were not uncommon, And once a site was rumored to be a sanctuary of healing, just like many rumors in general, it was nearly impossible to reconsider thinking differently about it. In fact, historically, we do not know for certain whether anyone ever was healed there, but excavations at this site in Jerusalem revealed that after the New Testament era, these pools continued to be used as healing sanctuaries called Asclepians. 
named after Asclepius, the Greek god of healing. And those of you who happen to have visited Jerusalem might remember that pool, which has been preserved and is visited by many tourists every year. Roman numeral two, paraplegia. The challenges of a paraplegic today are considerable, and yet they pale in comparison with the daily struggle of a paraplegic in the first century. Problems of mobility, livelihood, and social isolation just began the list of difficulties. Paraplegics frequently have problems with bowel and bladder control, not even to mention that people in the first century had to move them from place to place unless they crawled. Most of his income came from begging or from the charity of friends and family, and if he had bowel or bladder control issues, then his hygienic problem would be enormous. People would tend to stay away from him, and his hands, which were used for mobility, were rough and torn from the streets. Now, when I went to Cairo, Egypt a few years ago, I saw incidents where paraplegics live a step below the poorest of the poor. Their life is agony. So among the many blind and paralyzed in the Bethesda area looking for healing that day, Jesus reaches out to one particular man. Why, among all the invalids sitting by the pool, does Jesus concentrate on Morty? Because in God's sovereign plan, this is the time, this is the place, and this is the method by which Jesus will heal this man. So let's see what happens. Roman number three, the healing. Jesus walks up to this man at the pool, who, of course, is lying on the, on the ground, knowing he's been there a long time, and says, do you want to be healed? Well, Morty hears, but he does not listen to what Jesus is asking. And there's a big difference between listening and hearing. One of the five senses is hearing, and each of us hears many sounds throughout the day, but we do not always listen which is the ability to take it in and often comprehend what we hear. For example, you may have had the experience of being on the phone with a very talkative person whom you know is not a good listener and does not expect you to respond very often. So you have learned that you can switch to speakerphone, turn on your mute button, and as you, quote, listen to them, talk while you put your phone down and do the dishes. Well, For years, Morty has no doubt had people approach him as they walk by in the big city of Jerusalem and say something very indifferent to him like, what happened to you? Or, how long have you been like this? Or friends who did care say, well, are you feeling any better today, Morty? So Morty just assumes this stranger who approaches him is asking what everyone else asks him so he doesn't listen and begins to explain immediately that what he really needs is for someone to help him get into the pool when the angel stirs the water. Because Morty doesn't even answer the question, Jesus cuts right through the discussion and says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. So, incredibly, Morty picks up his mat and walks away without any curiosity about this stranger who's just healed him. This miracle is one of several that confirms our central idea for this lesson, which is Jesus has all authority as God's son. Who really knows exactly what Morty was thinking when he got out of there so quickly as if he was afraid he might have a remission at any second if he didn't leave immediately? Who knows? But we do know that Jesus finds him later in the temple, 
Scripture's not specific about if it was that day or a few days later. And we surmise that Morty is offering a sacrifice of thanks to God for his healing as well as, now, no doubt, confirming his healing with a priest as the Jewish law required. Oh, and by the way, this healing occurred on the Sabbath. Very important point. So when Jesus sees him, he says two things to Morty. First, in the literal Greek, he says, see, you have become well, establishing the fact that this healing was not as short-lived as many cures were at that time. Second, Jesus says, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, that seems to imply that apart from Morty's physical suffering, he was also debilitated spiritually. We don't know how, but by some Ongoing sin, it could have been hopelessness or unkindness to others. We don't know. But 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30, states that some physical illnesses can be the result of specific spiritual sins. We do know that there was a misguided belief in Judaism at the time that all physical ailments were the result of sin in one's life. Today, we understand that those who have an infirmity have not necessarily sinned, And those who sin do not necessarily suffer physically as a consequence, even though some people, even today, believe in cause and effect for illnesses. Now, we will see later in John 9, verse 3, that Jesus rejects that erroneous thinking. Verse 14 suggests that Jesus is making two points. First, Jesus is suggesting that Morty repent because there might be an ongoing, unconfessed sin that is causing him unnecessary problems. Now, Jesus knows that humans will always sin to a certain degree, but there is sin in some people that is so habitual, so recurrent, so so persistent, so unending that without repentance, it can be spiritually, mentally, and physically disabling unless that person gives up control of it to the Lord. Second, Jesus might further be saying with the Greek words, which literally mean give up sinning lest something worse may happen to you, that if Morty has some uncontrollable, continuous, and unrepentant sin in his life, then Jesus is saying you may have only thought the last 38 years of your life were tough. Imagine receiving the wrath of God for eternity if there's no repentance. Yikes. I mean, I find it fascinating, the scriptural, how creative and different are the healings that Jesus performs on different people. Now, I know some people who have said, I want to learn and memorize the exact words and the formula Jesus uses whenever he talks and whenever he heals people. Well, if someone's looking for a uniform pattern of the way Jesus operates, they're going to be frustrated. Why? Because Jesus does not have a consistent pattern for miracles or conversations with people. Jesus tells no two people the same thing in Scripture. Let me repeat that. Jesus tells no two people the same thing in Scripture. The only constant is Jesus himself. He's the one constant thing. So when Jesus approaches someone, he gives them what they need in order to believe him, but it's their choice. What kind of God is that? Well, a loving gracious, unpredictable, creative God. Roman numeral four. We know how creative God is because we know of the innumerable variety of animals, 
plants and insects he's created. We also see how creative people are when they are developed and they have so many gifts. They have different varieties of art and music and literature and humor and fashion. Speaking of fashion, it boggles my mind how fashion designers can continue to come up with so many new styles of women's fashion, especially the variety of women's shoes and purses. I mean, I've used the same wallet for the past nine years, and it's just fine with me. Of course, that does make some some people think I'm from the Jurassic period of history, which uh, I may be. But even more astounding is that out of a world population, most recently calculated 7.8 billion people, no two people are exactly alike. We have a wildly extravagant and creative God. By the way, that word wildly extravagant, that's another word for prodigal. We have a prodigal God. And Jesus demonstrates that by the way he deals with people. Now, before we leave Morty, let's remember that Jesus found him by the pool. I often hear people talk about looking for God or I found Jesus, as though the initiative lies entirely with us. We know, according to John 6, that no one comes to the Lord unless the Father draws them. And in this gospel, we'll see other examples of Jesus finding people who are not even looking for him. And as our central idea for this lesson states, Jesus has all authority as God's Son. He can seek and save the lost, and eternal life begins now for believers and continues on the other side of eternity. And we always remember that no matter how good or bad our physical health is, the choices we make about being faithful to the Lord are more important than our physical health because those choices determine our eternal lives. Bill, that's, that gets us up to the next point. Wow, that's a great place maybe to uh, take a brief break. Uh, Dr. Greg Heddington is my guest. We're studying the book of John. I'm just loving it. We're in our, our 10th uh, lesson with uh, Dr. Greg Heddington. We'll take a short break and be right back. Continuing our study in the book of John, we're in chapter 5, and I'm loving this, Greg. Let's pick up where we left off. I will call this Sabbath rules. Jesus performs this miracle on the Sabbath, and that becomes a point of contention with the religious leaders for the next four chapters. Now, we all know the fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and then the commandment explains that the Sabbath is a day of rest, which is, it's a good, excellent command. Fair enough. So hundreds of years later, how do the Jewish leaders respond to this command? Well, by the first century, they've added hundreds of minute, detailed rules concerning what they define as, quote, work, and these laws become codified within Jewish tradition. Sadly, the Jewish leaders become lost in rules. Roman number six, lost in rules. Okay, let's look at the bigger picture. Why were more stringent rules regarding work added? I think it's part of a universal truth that goes far beyond Sabbath laws. Here it is. People want rules, not freedom. Now, hold on. Listen to this. We may think we want freedom, so why would I say we want rules? Because it plays into our sense of fairness and justice. 
We want rules so people won't behave just any way they like without consequence. For example, I did volunteer youth work at a church for several summers, and we would sometimes go on a weekend retreat. I would let the kids make up their rules for themselves. One thing always occurred when this happened. What was that? The kids made up tougher rules than the adults would ever have imposed on them. <laughs> now, now, why would they impose such hard rules on each other? Think about it. They didn't want anyone to get away with the same thing because that wouldn't be fair to the rest of people who are keeping the rules. So why would people also in general want rules? Well, I think two reasons. First, so we can be sure that others will pay the consequences if they get out of line. But secondly, we want rules so we can keep score for ourselves, ultimately to earn merit with God and others for doing well. These two reasons were certainly why the Pharisees and scribes added extra rules, and God's grace was simply a hurdle too high for the Jewish leaders to get over. Of course, you can see the metaphor I brought hurdles back into it, which I mentioned earlier, or maybe not. Another example the attitude of these leaders is like a child who's constantly irritated by a sibling who keeps getting away with breaking family rules, but is never caught and punished. Now, a more consequential basis, not only did Jesus technically break the Sabbath law, but furthermore, Jesus was claiming that he was on an equal basis with Yahweh. And they're thinking, who does this man think he is? Well, that's why verse 18, for the first time in the gospel, says the Jewish leaders were looking for more evidence for Jesus, claiming that he was God, so they might execute him. By the way, a moment when I, uh, later, when, earlier, when I said that Jesus technically broke the Sabbath law because the Jewish law allowed a Jew to pull one of his cattle from out of the ditch if it falls in on the Sabbath, so that person would not lose their livelihood. And, of course, how much more important is a person? But the leaders got lost in the rules, so they focused their anger on the mat, which Morty carried, poor guy, on the Sabbath, rather than the joy they should have had with him that this man who was a paraplegic now could walk. As Jesus says in Mark two twenty seven, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. That just happens to be the verse I remember whenever I pull up to a stoplight in my car late at night, I see there's no other cars around me. So I just drive on through the light, remembering the law was made for man and not man for the law. Now, I'm not sure if my reasoning for the infraction, however, would stand up in court of law. Uh, okay, but I do want to make this next point. And this is especially for anyone who's ever tried to explain to a non-believer about what they must know in order to trust the Lord for salvation. So, Roman numeral 7, too good to be true, question mark. Think about it for a moment. Humans have always been drawn to the hope that we can control our destiny and gain salvation through good works. We figure if something is worth having, then a person ought to be able to work for it. So we design religions based on unique patterns of worship, personal sacrifice, memberships, attendance, and even suffering in order to deserve salvation. Because it seems too good to be true that God arrived in human flesh, as Jesus did, offered himself his life, death, and resurrection, and then asked us to forget what we might have to offer him, besides our lives, of course, and simply accept what he has already offered us. But that's God's truth in, in simple terms in Scripture. How do we respond? Well, we often want to make this first step toward Jesus complicated. But the attempt to earn one's way to God and salvation opposes the gospel. 
It's a lie from the pit, and many have fallen for the lie. Over the years of doing ministry, I've observed a surprising amount of confusion even among people who claim to believe Scripture. So here's uh, Roman numeral 8. It's called the heavenly scale. When I'm asked about how certain people hope to get to heaven, many of them respond with this story about the heavenly scales. They're serious, so I listen to them. It goes something like this. One day, this guy dies and goes to heaven. Sounds like the start of a typical joke. He's met at the pearly gates by St. Peter, and then the story diverges into separate stories about why St. Peter will or will not let him into heaven. But it almost always involves the idea of St. Peter, or sometimes God, looking at a giant heavenly scale on which has been measured the good things done in life on one side against the bad things done on the other side. Since most people believe their good behavior outweigh their bad behavior, they envision the scale will tip slightly in their favor, at which point St. Peter opens the door and welcomes them into eternal happiness. Well, friends, the heavenly scales illustration is bogus. Scripture teaches us it's not what we do, it's what Jesus has already done on the cross. That's grace. That must be made clear when you explain grace is God doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Let me say it again. Grace is God doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. So what about good works? It's a question, good question. The good works described in the heavenly scales illustration are in fact the kind of righteous lifestyle which God expects from Christ followers after they've been born again. And that kind of good behavior is produced by the power of the Holy Spirit in a life that's already been regenerated and transformed by the power of Christ. As our central idea for the Lation states, Jesus has all authority as God's Son to change us. Simply put, Good works are evidence of true faith, and if good works are clearly lacking in somebody, it's evidence that they have an absence, probably, of a transformed faith. But anyone who believes that getting into heaven is about good works outweighing their bad works on the fictitious big scale in heaven illustration, then they've adopted a false theology of the religious leaders who apply human efforts of really trying hard to win God's favor. Or the other option, of course, is someone who really has no interest in what will happen for eternity after their death. So if you, as a Christ follower, are talking to someone who wants to make that first step toward the Lord, tell them it does not have to be complicated. Jesus takes them as they are. So the question for them is, are you ready to say yes and give your life so that his spirit and truth can be in you? Who can ever be good enough to tip the scales toward good by themselves? No one. G.K. Chesterton, the British journalist and author, said, We are all born upside down, and Christ intervened to turn us right side up. As a Christ follower, there should be something about us that makes people wonder why we are so joyfully irregular, and we are different than others, in a good way. How is it that we emote a trusting reliance on the Lord? Because no matter what occurs in life, we know He's faithful and constant in his love for us. One reason the Apostle John wrote his gospel was to counteract the heresy that one could earn their way to heaven by following rules and acting religious. And, of course, that's what the, the Jewish religious leaders were all about. They added that 635 rules to the, the big book, their law book. But the Scripture says we are never too sick, 
too lost, too sinful for God's power to transform us. Finally, throughout his gospel, John reminds us over and over again of the message Jesus gives in John 5:24 when he says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned, but is passed from death to life. That's the scripture you need to give your friend who's seeking the Lord, or not seeking the Lord, but wants to know truth. Friends, there are no heavenly scales, and to many people, that sounds too good to be true, but because Jesus has all authority as God's Son, it is, in fact, true that we are saved by grace through through Jesus, and he meets us in whatever condition he finds us. He found Morty, who was not looking for him, and Jesus did not even ask Morty to follow him, but Jesus healed him. And the rest was up to Morty on how he would live. Jesus meets us where we are, but he doesn't want us to stay in that condition. He wants us to fully embrace the life he has always intended for us from the very beginning when we trust our lives to him. Greg, just fantastic. Thank you so much for once again taking us through the book of John. We're loving it. Thanks, Bill. Dr. Greg Heddington has been my guest. That wraps up our show for the day. Have a great night. I'll see you later. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.